Hello, and welcome to the Jacobite Podcast. Episode 18, The New Generation. Before we get going on today's topic, I'd like to say thank you to everyone who's tuned in so far. When I started this as a lockdown project last year, I never thought that I was going to get six listeners, let alone 6,000. So to everyone who tuned in, no matter what your platform, this amateur historian is deeply, deeply grateful. With that sentimentality out of the way, on to today's monologue. Henry Benedict Stuart was born into a world that was subject to turmoil and upheaval. The Stuart family was fracturing to the point of no return. James was already dejected from the fact his plotting had failed and that the transfer of power to the Georges had been seamless. Added to this, the marriage between James and Clementina had begun to unravel. Some historians have accused Clementina being childish, prone to mood swings, possibly even a manic depressive, what we would probably equate to a form of bipolar disorder these days. Some of this can be seen in this humble podcaster's opinion as unfairly tarnishing the Queen as the source of all ills. James was often seen as distant, aloof, and more focused on his throne than his family. It appears one major wrinkle of their relationship was that even though the royal couple were devout Catholics, Clementina rankled at James, filling his court with Protestant Jacobites. Double Agent Marr was replaced by John Hay of Cromlix, the Jacobite Earl of Inverness, in 1727. Hay was, according to some, a very difficult man to work with and could be extremely uncooperative, but his loyalty to King James and the Jacobite cause was seen as above reproach. Not so for the Queen. She felt that John Hay and the other Protestants did not have the best intentions regarding her family. John Hay's wife was appointed Lady-in-Waiting, and Hay's brother-in-law, James Murray, was appointed as Prince Charles's governor and tutor. While some historians have put this negative reaction down to Clementina's own volatile temper, or postpartum depression after the birth of Henry, to be honest, I'm fairly certain most mothers whose employees were in effect barring them from seeing their children would probably go ballistic. Clementina trusted neither Earl Hay, nor his wife, nor James Murray, and resented all of them being imposed upon her by her husband, but her fears were often stoked at this point by her confidant and companion, Mrs Sheldon. Clementina already disliked the Hayes and positively despised Murray, especially after his attempt to have Charles and Henry sent to the Spanish royal court to be brought up. She hardly needed any convincing from her chambermaid Mrs Sheldon, but she decided to antagonise the Queen further by alleging that the Earl was seeking to covertly convert the young Charles to the Protestant faith. As a devout Catholic, this would obviously not do for the Queen, who became openly hostile to Earl and Lady Inverness, even going so far as to propagate the rumour others had started, accusing King James of having an affair with Lady Inverness. James, in all honesty, hadn't touched Lady Inverness, and the main reason he'd increased the amount of Protestants within his court was so that his children could be exposed to those viewpoints. Given that his subjects in Britain were mainly Protestant, James felt his family should understand their concerns about the royal's Catholic faith and teach them tolerance to others if the Stuarts were to be restored as Catholic monarchs of an Anglican country, given that this was the reason James VII and II had been deposed in the first place. But to Clementina, this was the last straw, only confirmed when James removed Mrs Sheldon from service and his Queen demanded the removal of Murray and Earl and Lady Inverness, and James refused. 
In all truth, certain accounts have detailed how rude Mrs. Sheldon had been to King James, and perpetuating false rumours of an affair could have probably been grounds for dismissal even in today's market. But to Queen Clementina, this merely reinforced the fact that her husband had stopped listening to her. James would write to his wife, begging her not to leave the household to go and live in a convent, as she had threatened. James told Clementina the Invernesses had done nothing wrong, and he was well within his rights to sack Mrs. Sheldon. Nonetheless, James pleaded with his wife to stay, but on November 15th, 1725, Clementina departed the Stuart Palazzo to return to the convent of St. Cecilia, where she had stayed before her wedding to James, accompanied by Mrs. Sheldon and the Countess of South Esk. The story spread through the courts of Europe, and as James feared, scandal ensued. Mrs. Sheldon's brother-in-law, who it turns out was the Earl of Mar, had fed this back to London. Hearing the rumours, the Pope sent an envoy to reprimand James about the reports of raising his son Protestant and having an affair with Lady Inverness. In a rare flash of unreserved anger, James not only denied the affair, but also told the papal envoy that his son's education was his own affair and that he had been accused of any such impropriety again, he would not be held responsible for how he treated the next envoy who accused him of this to his face, with some historical accounts saying he threatened to throw the man out of the window. This tense standoff continued for around 18 months, with various twists and turns, including the Pope refusing to pay James's pension or debt relief. The matter caused James all manner of strife, with him writing to his wife letters such as the one he started with, See, madam, what difficulties you expose me, when honourable men will venture to serve me after the scenes you have publicly exhibited. The tension was stoked by people in the employ of Walpole and the British, men such as the Earl of Mar and Cardinal Alberoni, who'd helped organise Jacobite Spanish joint operations, were in the ear of Clementina, telling her to keep the Pope on side and that Lady Inverness was in the employ of the British, having been turned whilst in prison on trip to Britain. It was this that led to the additional conspiracy theory that Lady Inverness was to turn her husband to the British cause, delivering a fatal dose of poison to the heart of the Jacobite state. None of this was true, however. None of the theories had any major evidence backing them up. They relied on innuendo and the prejudices of the people hearing the said rumours. This impasse was only ended by the actions of the Pope and the Earl of Inverness. Inverness prevailed upon James to let him stand aside, in a compromise negotiated with the intervention of the Duke of Lyria, the son of the Duke of Berwick, who'd been King James's half-brother. Inverness and his wife stood down, and Inverness was created a Duke in the Jacobite peerages. Pushing the couple from the other direction, the Pope pretty much forced Clementina from the convent she was staying in. She returned to the palazzo and the king, despite not getting rid of James Murray, but in fact seeing him promoted to Inverness's position as Secretary of State. She was home with her husband, but the reality of the situation was that this was mainly for public consumption, and so the Jacobite courts may keep up appearances. Queen Clementina maintained the facade to stay close to her children, who she adored. She took good care to be in control of both her son's early educations. They were seen as good-natured smart boys, though it was noted that Charles often suffered from a lack of attention and in an argument with James Murray had threatened to kill the man, and he was therefore noted to also have a rather strong temper. The young Prince Henry was said to be more gentle-natured than his brother, who was said to be unruly, but both were felt by Inverness to be the most lively boys on earth. Pray God preserve them long. The two boys were fast becoming young men of the world. In 1730, the sitting Pope died and was replaced by Clement XII, 
who lifted some of the restrictions on the papal pension for James. The French and the Spanish allowances were also coming back in, leaving the Jacobite court in a far better financial position than it had been in before. In 1733, a new opportunity arose for possible advancement, when King Augustus II of Poland died. There was a suggestion that James should be offered the throne, or at the very least be given his links to the Sobieska family, passed on to one of his sons. James refused, stating that the British crown was for him and his son Charles, but did say it was a shame that his son Henry wasn't old enough to be considered, as he was a Sobieska, and that would have been good for a Duke of York to have as a consolation prize, given that Charles would get the crown of Britain. In some alternative universe somewhere, we may even have seen a King James of Poland, or young King Henry, with James as regent. Now in our timeline, the War of the Polish Succession followed, and at this point we're staying into counter-history and the territory that elicits massive arguments from historians and academics, so I'm going to retreat back into our narrative and resume with the young Prince Charles. In 1734, Charles was a young man of 13 when his father gave him permission to accompany Don Carlos, the heir to the Spanish throne, on campaign to seize Geta, the territory of Charles VI, the Holy Roman Emperor, who counted Naples and Sicily amongst his possessions. Proposing this little trip was the Duke of Berwick, Charles's cousin and the son of James's half-brother. James agreed, and after sending Henry into a state of distress that nine years old was far too young to accompany his brother and cousin to a war zone, albeit a siege zone, Charles went on his way. After receiving his blessing from the Pope, Charles went off taking James Murray, his tutor Thomas Sheridan, two Catholic friars and a small retinue of servants. Arriving at Geta, he was said to impress Don Carlos, the King of Naples, who at 19 was taken with the younger man's easy manner and excellent etiquette. The Spanish officers, keen not to embarrass their king but eager to show the Prince of Wales some battle, took him to a house well out of the range of the enemy. Don Carlos announced with pride that this was the officers' quarters, but it was clear to anyone else except the King of Naples this was nothing more than a convenient place to keep the VIPs safe while seeing some of the battle. Luckily for Charles's experience, Berwick took him down to the trenches to experience the siege up close. Charles was said to have made several visits, delighting soldiers with his grasps of French, Spanish and Italian, as well as asking all sorts of probing questions from the men, such as engineers and artillerymen, and details of their specialties in combat contexts. James eventually called Charles back to Rome, but his stellar impression on the courts of Europe was widely talked of. Baron von Stosch, an agent of the British government in Rome, wrote to London calling Charles a far more dangerous enemy than his father was. Charles's high spirits were not to last, however, as sadly on January the 18th, 1735, Queen Clementina passed away from tuberculosis, exacerbated by her asthma and frailty from religious fasts she continued to undertake. When her sons visited her on her deathbed, she urged them to keep their Catholic faith, no matter the carrots dangled in front of them, as nothing beats eternal salvation. The princes were absolutely distraught from the death of their mother. They were said to have both wept uncontrollably for days. She was taken to the church of Santi Apostoli, and on Sunday, January 23rd, 1735, Clementina had her body clad in full royal robes by her ladies-in-waiting, and led in a procession to St. Peter's, where the Jacobite Queen was laid to rest near the Chapel of the Presentation. If you go today, a later monument marks the spot. The only part of her outside that grave is her heart, 
which was placed in an urn and laid to rest at the Santi Apostoli Church. It is said that James would often spend an hour each morning at Santi Apostoli, praying near his wife's heart, and gradually withdrew from public life, letting the two young princes take the four. James saw young Henry growing up as religious, serious, and carrying a royal air, but Charles was more laid back. He spent his time hunting and playing the viol, sleeping in his clothes often to save time when he wanted to go and do something in the morning. Henry, by contrast, was a pious young man. He would often wake at 5.45 to pray, then spend ten minutes or so on his breakfast before spending an hour giving confession. He spent most of his time on his watch to ensure he used each minute of his time constructively. His religious devotion went beyond obsession, sometimes avoiding social gatherings just to pray. In a bid to instill some maturity in his errant older son, James sent him on a tour of the Italian states. So Charles departed with his retinue, touring Bologna and Genova and Parma, as well as Venice, much to the chagrin of the British, he was showered with gifts and won acclaim for his fair skin, light hair, and befitting his title of Duke of Albany, tartan attire. He was welcomed in each of these territories as the Prince of Wales, and a future heir to the throne of Britain. As the Prince continued to tour and became more of a young man, his retinue noted in private letters to James that the young Prince was uneasy to be around and was only a trouble to his own people regarding his development of a particularly short temper, but to his dignitaries and guests he became the picture of regal poise and decorum, his looks and manners becoming the talk of European high society. So for now, we're going to leave the Stuarts and see how things are in Britain. We left England at the time of George II's succession to the British throne. George was a rather short man, he wore platform shoes to be higher up. He wasn't a sophisticated man, he was often known to berate his wife and kick his servants, but he seemed quite aware that his general public cared for him only as much as he wasn't Catholic. Whilst he didn't care for Britain, he often preferred to travel to Hanover any time the schedule allowed, he often made far more of an effort to appear regal. He adopted the most rigid of discipline in dress and etiquette. This had a tendency to make him somewhat distant and aloof to his subjects, but his demeanour, combined with the desire to be involved in policy, reading and devoting time every day of the week to separate affairs of state, which set him well in the eyes of most of the public. Walpole had feared trying to control or handle his monarch politically, but found the king a firm friend and an ally, as George seemed to realise Walpole controlled Parliament with a mix of patronage and coercion. And Walpole realised that George wasn't keen to risk his position, but was also a man who'd fight if he had to. Walpole also knew that as long as the king was in position and had an easy life, he'd continue to support his prime minister in a position exemplified by the supposed words, Consider, Sir Robert, what makes me easy in this matter makes for your ease too. George II continued to run the country via the dominant Whig party, who continued to hold power in Parliament as opposed to the Tories, over whom the vicious rumours, in some cases not entirely undeserved, of Jacobite sympathy still hung. Walpole continually told George he feared the return of the Pretender, and it would only be a matter of time before a foreign power would send forces to aid a new Jacobite rising, and so it was that the government cracked down on dissent and Catholicism, with Walpole passing large taxes on Catholic estates, 
to line the government's coffers. In the royal household, it was a case of history repeating itself as the king fell out with his son. Prince Frederick had come to the UK in 1728, shortly after his father's ascension to the throne. He'd been in Europe with his uncle because his father had come to England when George I was crowned. Frederick anglicised his name from Friedrich, but was only allowed to the UK once his father had been crowned, owing to some fallout where George I had attempted to leave Hanover to Frederick. The prodigal son returned to the family of fun-loving, cultured bon vivant and womaniser, in stark contrast to his father's austere, uncultured outlook on life. Frederick was a breath of fresh air to some, with his love of science and the arts. It was this, added to the fact that William Augustus, his younger brother and Duke of Cumberland, was clearly the parents' favourite, that led Frederick to begin scheming against his family and setting up a court to rival the king, attracting Whig rivals to Walpole and Hanoverian Tories. Frederick also spread rumours that his father had died on a ship that wrecked in 1736, later saying he'd been fatally wounded. This particular rumour only ended up putting to bed when George forced himself from his bed rest to appear in public. Earlier in that trip to Hanover, it's worth noting that someone pinned a note to the door saying that George had gone missing and left his children to the parish, which, whilst not true, is kind of a funny insult towards the Hanoverians and did make light of the fact that George liked to go to Hanover a lot. Frederick continued to rail against his father. When gin consumption skyrocketed, owing to increased disposable income and the lack of licensing for distillers of spirits, gin was sold to all classes and was decried by some as destructible to the inferiors, rising from the rigid prejudice that the working class was somehow lower in intelligence and standing than their aristocratic peers. In response to this, Parliament passed the Spirit Duties Act of 1735, which imposed a tax of 20 shillings a gallon, plus a £50 licence fee, which would be the equivalent of £8,000 a year today. It was known colloquially as the 1736 Gin Act, and was highly unpopular. The law was passed and King George issued a proclamation to urge citizens to comply, but much like later in the United States when they attempted prohibition, there came into being a spate of illegal stills and mass non-compliance. Frederick courted public acclaim by openly opposing the Gin Act. The final straw in the relationship between father and son came from the fact that Frederick spirited his wife from Hampton Court Palace to St James's to deny his father the chance to be at the birth of his grandchild. Since James was removed from power in 1688 in the so-called Glorious Revolution, the royals tended to have their heirs' births witnessed in order to dispel scurrilous scandal that could arise from a contested birth. George's anger, therefore, at Frederick wasn't just about a grandfather not being able to see their grandchild, but a king furious with his heir that he would let his pettiness endanger the future of their royal house. With this latest action, George finally lost patience with Frederick and barred him and his wife from court. Unlike George I, however, George II allowed Frederick to take his children with him to Leicester House, no doubt still heavily affected by this particularly cruel action during the split from his own father. But Frederick's exclusion was absolute, with his father even banning him from the palace to visit Queen Caroline as she was dying in 1737. If Frederick hadn't been opposed to his father before, I'd wager this would have helped. 
but Frederick was not the only person mourning the death of the Queen. Sir Robert Walpole had found assistance from the Queen in influencing the King, but whilst he was saddened to lose her, it's clear to state that Walpole remained the confidant of the King and in power. But Frederick had his sights set on toppling Walpole, and his rivals set their sights on Frederick. One of these was a former army officer turned Whig MP called William Pitt, later known to history as Pitt the Elder. Pitt was a member of a faction within the Whig Party that styled itself as the Patriot Whigs, a group within that opposed Walpole's premiership. Pitt endured the wrath of Walpole himself in 1736, when in retaliation for his constant criticism and opposition, Walpole had Pitt dismissed from his position in the army in a highly petty, retaliatory and legally suspect manoeuvre. Frederick, the Prince of Wales, brought Pitt into his confidences, appointing him as a groom of the Prince's bedchamber, a position of some renown and standing. Frederick had a powerful speaker and committed enemy of Walpole on his side. All he needed now was an event to fight against Walpole with, and this came in 1738, when a one-eared ship captain testified to Parliament. The event in question had happened eight years before, but it would set in course events that would take Britain to war. Robert Jenkins was a mariner whose ship was stopped and boarded by Spanish coast guards off the coast of Florida, which was at the time a Spanish colony. The soldiers accused him of smuggling, as British ships found supplying contraband to Spanish colonies far more profitable than the legal trade they were allowed to do in slaves, which sounds really tasteless to a modern audience, but was a sad reality of life in the 18th century. Spain had tried to limit the trade with treaties, but started to take sterner measures of boarding ships, and on the fateful day in 1731 that Robert Jenkins' ship the Rebecca was boarded, was later to a Commons Committee Jenkins claimed a Spanish soldier by the name Juan de Leon Fandino sliced his ear off in retaliation for smuggling, stating, Go and tell your king I will do the same should he dare to do the same. There were differing accounts, however, that Jenkins also brought with him something that he claimed resembled that ear that had been cut off. As the enemies of Walpole wanted, there was pandemonium, uproar, and a desire for vengeance against the Spanish. Never mind that there was no actual evidence this event occurred, but hey, this uh, event is just going to join a depressingly long list of dubiously truthful circumstances that can lead to military action. But not if Walpole could help it. Walpole was notorious amongst his peers as a politician averse to wars. He'd managed to stay out of the War of the Polish Succession, which had nearly granted the Stuarts a throne and consumed many European nations. Walpole was keen to negotiate understandings and treaties, and this time was no exception. During hastily convened negotiations, the Spanish and British governments signed a treaty in Pardo, which agreed a joint commission to adjudicate disputes between Spanish Florida and the British territory of Georgia. Spain would also pay Britain £95,000 in compensation, though the original demand was £200,000, and the South Sea Company would pay Spain £68,000, with Spain retaining limited rights to search British ships. The British negotiators signed the deal and returned home confident crisis had been averted. They would be abruptly disabused of this notion. To the opposition, the treaty was a concession too far. British subjects believed they had been subjected to illegal searches and mutilation, and in response the British offer compensation. The opposition was spoiling for a fight, and this was the opportunity they needed. The 
opposition politicians and weak dissenters, including Pitt, jumped on it. In a speech to the Commons, Pitt called the convention insecure, unsatisfactory and dishonourable, and that by capitulating to Spain, this government was sacrificing its honour and standing in the world. The South Sea Company, in a strange move for what was essentially a state-controlled business, defied the convention articles and refused to pay any compensation to Spain. With threats against people who voted in favour of the treaty, including printing home addresses, the government finally had to concede that war became inevitable. The Royal Navy was ordered to sail to the West Indies and assaulted La Guerra in Venezuela, a Spanish colonial port. This artillery fire started a war, later dubbed by Thomas Carlyle, as the War of Jenkins' Ear. The British and Spanish started a war against each other that would last for eight long years. But as soon as the war got going, events in Europe took a dramatic turn that would throw the continent into chaos and throw the Jacobites another roll of the dice. In 1740, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles VI died. As per a previous agreement, owing to Charles dying without male heirs, his daughter Maria Theresa was given the throne to the Holy Roman Empire, but other agents were conspiring to take control. Bavaria, Saxony and Prussia all refused to be bound by the previous agreement, either staking their own claims in the case of Charles of Bavaria, or to further their own territorial aims, as was the goal of Frederick of Prussia, who would later be known as Frederick the Great. Frederick capitalised on this dispute to march into the territory of Silesia, grabbing it due to its strategic importance and to show strength to his regional rivals. A young ambitious man at the age of 28 at the time, Frederick of Prussia had engaged in an attempted compromise, asking for parts of Silesia to be ceded to his domain in return for recognition of Maria Theresa as Empress of the Holy Roman Empire. But she was in no mood to negotiate, and, in an attempt to display her own strength, mobilised the army for war. The war of the Austrian succession had begun, and in the beginning Britain had tried to stay neutral, with King George fearing for his homeland of Hanover should war break out. But, when it became clear that France and Spain were involved, Britain was rallied to get involved too, and support Maria Theresa. George II and several thousand mercenaries had themselves based in Hanover, awaiting the advances of their enemies. Some of those enemies saw that with a king in Europe, a divided parliament, and a rebel movement in Rome ready to go, with a youthful prince ready to retake the throne for his father, the opportunity was ripe to cause some trouble in the UK. Next time, we begin our look at the rebellion we all came here for, the best known and the most romanticised. Together, we will look at the actions that led Charles Edward Stuart to become immortalised in history as Bonnie Prince Charlie, as we begin our look and our story of the Rebellion of 1745.